everybody, this is the Lurkful Podcast. Today we're here with Zoe Routh, and I hope I said that right. And uh, today we're going to talk about uh, uh, the human side of things in business, like work culture, that amazing type of, of, of material that when you're in the news or you're reading the news, you see, you hear about a startup, you think you, you see these numbers like these valuations, but that's actually not, like, in my opinion, the most important stuff. It's the, the human aspect that glues everything together. Because at the end of the day, like money doesn't, do much but people do like people do the stuff like the money is just kind of like one one aspect of it so that's what we're going to talk about today or like many of the things we're going to talk about but uh and there uh zoe has a book coming out which we'll uh we'll talk about at the end like make sure everyone has links but so the first thing i'm always curious to learn about when i meet someone is where did they get how they go from where they were to where they are now so what is the thing about work culture and the human side of thing that gets you so passionate that you want to write a book or like uh, help people better understand it. Like what is there, is there like a memory that like converted you to this way of thinking or like, like where does the passion come from? Yeah. Thank you for asking that. And it's delightful to be here with you. Um, for me, the passion for people started ages ago and it must've been during childhood. Not that I would recognize it at that point. I think we make up stories as we look backwards and at the same time, probably a pivotal experience happened for me on one of my early canoe trips. So I'm a big outdoor adventure lover. And growing up, I went to summer camp. And when I was 15, I did a three-week canoe trip and then, then a six-week canoe trip the following summer. And it was on that six-week canoe trip with a friend of mine. And um, it was just extraordinary country we paddled through in Northwest Ontario and Canada. And one evening we were sitting up, the moon was shining on the lake. And it was just stunning. It was like diamonds across the water. It was just spectacular. And I sat up there with a friend and we spent hours after everybody else had gone to bed, just talking about life, the universe and everything, our friendships, our, our lives at school, what we wanted to do, what we enjoyed. I don't even remember. I just remember that sense of connection, both to the natural world and to the human element. And I think that powerful experience I felt so good in that moment about um, my friendships and, and my place in the world that sort of carried through everything that I did consequently. So everything that I love to do, I ended up working at summer camp for years and years and years and um, studying people. And it was always the people stuff that I loved to do with my work and even better if it was in a wilderness setting. And those two themes, wilderness and nature and people followed me through my life until I finally looked back and went, there's a pattern here. <laughs> I keep choosing these things around people and wilderness. And so that passion and curiosity for what makes people come alive, what makes people tick, why they get into discussions and why they get into disagreements and um, why relationships fall apart and why they come together and how people can actually work better together. These were all these questions about the people interactions um, I just was fascinated by and obsessed by and it led me to lots of uh, study, inquiry and uh, curiosity around it. So I guess that's the starting point, the genesis of this wonderful experience that has carried, carried me through. And I still have those questions. Uh, every, everything I read and everything I learn just carries on to more questions, I guess. Yeah, I think the, one of my favorite Neil deGrasse Tyson quotes, who like a lot of people know him for like uh, deep planetizing Pluto, he said that the more you know, the more you can trace the outline of your ignorance. So it's like, it's like constantly <laughs> like just pushing the envelope. But I feel like the conjunction of the human side of things, the work culture and the wilderness is, is interesting in and of itself because 
like isn't isn't like a really effective way to like build camaraderie and and uh like getting people to work really well together is to like kind of put them in adverse alien situations where they have to pull together so i've I, yeah. I don't know if you like use like what you're learning in the wilderness when you're interacting with your friends and your other line of uh, life, like, or do you see like some cross pollination there? Absolutely. So what you're talking about is experiential education. And traditionally that's been in the outdoors. And that's that sort of genesis of learning has ancient roots back to um, Roman times or Egyptian, well, Roman times probably, where learning by doing was a, a very huge principle of how to engage the whole person. And it's had many different articulations and experiences. How I've used it in my professional life is in three different ways. So the learning that you can have in the wilderness has three different avenues, I guess. There is the traditional push yourself to the limit in against nature or within nature. And that's sort of the work that I did in canoe tripping, that it was pretty tough and you pushed yourself and you learned about your own personal limits as well as how to work together as a, as a collective. Because when you're traveling through the bush, you only have each other to rely on. So it's both personal limits and team engagement that taught that. And that kind of practice also happened when I worked at Outward Bound here in Australia. That's very much about getting from point A to point B, doing all these various activities and how we problem solve together. Um, Another set of uses that you can do in team building in the outdoors is around the outdoors as a metaphor. So you do activities in the wilderness, it provides a container, and the activities form a narrative about how we explore stress and pressure and problem solving in difficult circumstances. And the third way to use it is through deep personal reflection. I've done, uh, I've taken groups of leaders out into the bush, into spectacular settings in the desert and in the mountains to do some deep personal reflection. So that's how you can use the outdoors and your question about how does it have application outside of the wilderness about um, doing activities you can do that kind of experiential work within the classroom with teams and organizations so you throw them a a problem to solve that's either a scenario or an activity that they can get in and uh, do together i think because in a lot of training situations a lot of theory and not so much application but when you're doing stuff together even if it's a game, the emotions are real. And that's the key learning that you can take from experiential education into real world application. You learn how to deal with the emotional side of people's stuff in problem solving. And that has context both in the wilderness and in the office. And that's probably the key takeaway from doing that kind of educational approach. Mm -hmm. One of the things I'm always curious about, and I've, I, I haven't found an answer, so I'm curious if we can, maybe like you know the answer to this, but the, so, you you go out in the wilderness and you 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 if you maybe you're developing your work culture or you're fixing like an, maybe an incorrect or like an, an optimal work culture and then when you go back i know there's like a level of state dependent learning where like you're in an environment that uh like you've learned to see those behaviors is there a way to st like structure things when you go back to the office or back to where you work so that you do like the maximum impact of what you learned is translated and it doesn't regress back to previous ways of thinking about work culture and how to interact with people. Cause I know like with a like addiction, for instance, like being around, being in the same house, for instance, can make it really hard for people to like go to a more healthier life. So I'm curious, like how, how you found, uh, how, how you think about that and, and how you advise people and mentor them through their work culture. There's two things. One, it's about embedding rituals, and the other one is about a cadence of engagement. Um, 
And anchored across all of that is using the culture compass. So it's something I write about in my third book, Loyalty. And developing a culture compass is really critical for teams. And the four points of the compass are knowing your purpose, where are you going, your values, what's important to you, uh, who you serve. It's really important to have that on there. And then the behaviors that you all agree are acceptable and not acceptable. That's probably the important juggernaut when it comes to culture is having the agreements around that. Now, that's the first step. But you can all say, yes, yes, here, here. We all agree to that and then blow it off the next week and forget that you had this agreement around it. So the accountability piece is something that's really important when you develop something like a culture compass is how will we hold each other to account? What does that actually mean? How will we check in on that? And so this is where the rituals piece comes in. So uh, a regular ritual where we say, let's talk about our culture. How are we doing against these things? Does anybody have encourage people to give each other feedback in terms of what is working and what is not? And so you create this atmosphere, this sense of safety where it's okay to discuss the sensitive issues. And so you ritualize it. And then the cadence of engagement comes after that. So it's, we're going to do it at every meeting. And this is what we're going to talk about on a weekly basis. This is what we're going to talk about on a quarterly basis and an annual basis. So it's not just about the one-off learning. It's about the embedding and the rituals and the practice and the continuity of it. Because culture is an organic thing. It doesn't stay static. I think this is the biggest mistake that a lot of people make when it comes to culture is I think if they have a good one, it'll always stay the same like that, or they've nailed the way that they do culture, but they haven't embedded it in their systems and their practices and brought it to the forefront of their discussions and paid attention to it as if culture was a client in and of itself. So those are a couple of ways where you can keep the learning alive and useful and meaningful. Yeah, it makes sense. The, uh, especially the, like, making a habit of it. I definitely see how like that can make sure that you're not like regressing. So like that, that makes a lot of sense. Is there, is it so for like early, is there a level where start like we're thinking about culture wouldn't make as much sense or like, so like what like, early stage startup, maybe like a couple of people working in a garage is work culture as important as a foundational thing to worry about then as so that you have it down right and you can continue to grow or is it a, a thing that you worry about at a certain level and then start like building in. So I guess the, the real question is, is work culture like a foundation concern that people, in, in your opinion, should be working on since day one of conception of their startup or their business so that they can constantly be growing in the right direction? Or is it something that um, that can be added on later? I imagine it's not the second one because I feel like you, know, you got like, you know, you got to do the right things, like eat your breakfast, you know, brush your teeth and stuff. And if you like avoid that, then it'd be a bad thing. But uh, I'm, I'm curious, like, how, how would you like slice it out? Uh, so your summation that it's probably the first thing that it's part of what you do from the beginning is, is true. I think the amount of time, money and effort you dedicated to it when you're going through a startup phase is different than what you might do when things get a bit more complex. Because what is culture? Culture is your set of relationships and how people feel when they come to work and work with you. That's what it is. So if there's you and two other people in your garage, there's still a culture happening there. And if you ignore the relationships and you ignore the dynamics, that thing is going to fall apart before it even gets off the ground. So I think start as you mean to continue in terms of being able to articulate your culture compass. And it may be a nebulous short basic thing when you start off. And, but it's still the same thing applies for startups, you know, what are your values? Where are you going? Who do you serve? What's important to you? 
And what are the, the what are the behaviors that are acceptable and not acceptable in your team of one or two? <laughs> and you stick to that. And that makes it easier when you have the basics to bring more people into the fold and have it established and grow. Otherwise, you're winging it. And I think the big mistakes that a lot of startups make is that they're so task oriented because there is so much to do to set up a business that they can they neglect two things. One is their own self-care and two is the relationship side of the work. Um, I don't think the time and effort is equal in those areas. Uh, there just needs to be a little bit of interweaving of both. So I take with task versus relationship um, ratio, it's 80% task and 20% relationship. And you get 80% of the results as, as a result. So Pareto's principle applies in this case. Makes sense. But I'm, I'm glad I was thinking in, in line with someone who knows more than me. The, um, <laughs> the, uh, well, we know that intuitively, right? Like we know yeah. that whatever our business, it's all, it, it is relationship based. It is about people. And you said it in the intro that if we're making money, how do we make money? We make it with and for and through people. So it, it's not something that we can just take for granted and ignore. So you're, it's not that I know more. I mean, I think we know all known to this stuff intuitively we may not have put frameworks around it necessarily. Mm -hmm. It's all good. I think that uh, uh, ignorance is like a thing is like a challenge to do better and to uh, always respect when someone knows more, uh, uh, knows and is uh, taking the time to learn more about something. So, but um, something I'm curious about is, so I've worked with people, I'm sure you, like there are some people who maybe don't see the value of work culture or maybe that they have a bad work culture, but they don't see the value in changing it. Is there, is there like a, a story or uh, an example that you tend to find is effective in helping people see the value of focusing on work culture so that people listen in who are thinking, oh, I don't know, work, work culture, you know, I, I know it exists. I know people say it's important, but I don't know how it like it uh, will affect my life and the life of my employees or maybe my boss's life, et cetera. Is there like a good like, uh, like case study or example or story that tends to help people see the value of it? Absolutely. So <laughs> I see this a lot of times. Uh, the, the conflict comes when you have people who are um, very results driven and they haven't necessarily seen the benefit, as you say, of working on the people stuff. And uh, they kind of think that's fluffy and a waste of time and money. And the way to talk to them about it, the way that I have found is talking about it in terms of what frames their their top of their value list. And so if someone is very results driven, the top of their values list is results, outcomes. And so I talked to them about like, okay, your outcomes are pretty good. You may have noticed though, that not everybody in the workplace is as engaged as you. They don't take it. They don't work as hard as you and they don't necessarily have the buy-in. And I check in with them and it's like, yeah, that's always the case. There's some, some slackers and whatever. So they give opportunity to complain about the behaviors that they find irritating because it's not results aligned. It's like, that's the entry point. And then what I do is we talk about, right, if you want to shift results, if you want to get more of these people engaged and have buy-in and step up and take initiative, the key to that is understanding where they're coming from. And it's understanding and unpacking what their key motivational drivers, because it's not that they're lazy and it's not that they're incompetent. It's that something hasn't been opened up for them in this context. So if you want to get the most results out of your people, you need to do a little bit of this people stuff. You need to understand their behaviors, their drivers, et cetera. So when you do that, you'll get better results. So I always frame it in the outcome that's most important to them. I don't talk about like, they'll be happier, you have a more you know, um, pleasant work environment because if you are so results driven, that's irrelevant in, in your worldview. 
So by doing this kind of work and selling it from this will be good for the results that you care about, we can start to have the conversation about different people. And what I find astonishing, this happened the other day, um, in, I was doing one of these master classes around people map reading, and we were talking about that. And we had this, we get to this one exercise called your alien is your ally, where there's different polarities in workplaces of how people like to show up at work. And we often see people who are so different to us as complete aliens. We just don't understand their planet. So like I was talking about the results driven individual, when we, I said, your alien is somebody who likes a really calm, stable environment who is really interested in having strong relationships with people. And he just sat there blinking at me going, what? <laughs> really? There's people who, who that's important to them at work. And it was, it was baffling to him. And then we unpacked it a little bit and he realized that those people are valuable to the team because they will help the team dynamic work and therefore get better results. So he sat in, open-eyed wonder about trying to explore being in his alien's world and then trying to understand what it's like to come to work and, and think about how I fit in and how I support others because it's not something he had ever really tasted before or thought about or engaged with. And it was an eye-opening experience for him. Doesn't mean that he's gonna throw out his results value and then all of a sudden be all about team. And yet he started to see the shift and he started to say, well, they'll actually be more productive if I meet them where they are. And for me, that's a massive breakthrough. So if, if I can help people to see that, then we can all start to improve our workplace cultures. Even if you don't even term it in terms of cultures, even if we frame it in the, in the case of results. Mm -hmm. I definitely could see how that would work. The, I think another thing that for like people who are maybe results orientated, it's, it's the, it's like something that I've noticed is that when there's like a weak, maybe like a weak work culture that they tend to be contingent on work getting done. So they have to like be around and almost like be like, like a warden or something, like making sure people are like working and stuff. But if you have a yeah. good work culture, they're going to come to you with what they're working on. Like, it's going to be the opposite thing. You're going to be like spending time being like, okay, guys, okay, this is amazing. You know, let's keep going versus like, what are you guys doing? What are you guys doing? What are you guys doing? Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. I, I, I think I've noticed that a couple of times where like, you know, the, the CEO or the boss will go like go on a trip like go on at like a conference or something like that. And everyone just kind of sits at their desk and doesn't work. And it's like, why, why is this happening? You know, like, well, it's not a, not a good work culture. Like they only work when the person who's like the driver is there because they don't feel like drivers, they don't feel activated. And so I think yeah. that's also another one. Like if you, if you're constantly feeling like you have to like go and check and go and check, go and check. Like if you've developed a, a good one, I think they're going to come to you and let you know how it's going. If it's something's not working out, they're going to proactively solve it. And I think that's a big thing as well. Cause like you don't have, a lot of mental energy to like spend on like playing whack-a-mole with all these things. That's why you hire people to help you. Or that's why you engage these people to come and work with you as a, as a teammate, like, or why you chose to work there as a, as a, a member of the, of the team, which is kind of a, a opposite way of what I just said. But um, I think that's also a, a, a thing that I think people listening, if you've been thinking like, Oh, I don't know about this. Um, it's like, if, if you were very results driven, you only have a hundred percent of mental energy a day. Like, how do you want to spend it? You know, like I'd rather spend it hearing how excited people are to resolve whatever they resolved versus like me being like, what are you doing? Because then like, I mean, it just kind of reframes your life a little bit. And I think it's good. But that's a really good selling point, too. It's like, yeah, you'll spend a lot less time on dealing with people's motivations or issues mm -hmm. if you do the people stuff right. And that's definitely a, a lever point to help them to pay attention to that kind of thing. 
I was working, I've just started working with a new client. He's very task driven and results oriented and he's been extremely successful in his business. And he's in partnership with an, another woman who does the team stuff really well. And uh, he's been getting a lot of feedback that he's difficult to work with and that he's a bit of a micromanager. And um, so I had my initial discussion with him was, was about this. I'm like, what do you really want? He goes, basically, I just want people to show up motivated and just follow the process. I'm like, okay, interesting. And then throughout the conversation, he, he's, I said, what else do you need to know? He's like, will it work? <laughs> I said, well, that depends on you. He goes, what do you mean? I'm like, well, I can show you all these frameworks. Unless you decide to take on the feedback and experiment a little bit with your approach, then it's not really going to happen. And I think that moment where I put the mirror up to him and said, you've got something to contribute or are contributing to this experience that your staff are having was a bit of a moment of clarity. It's like, uh. You mean I might have to change a little? I'm like, your behavior has to change a little bit. Absolutely. Otherwise, you're going to keep chasing people to try and force them down this process. And you actually haven't woken up to the fact about what engages and motivates people. You haven't given the latitude that people are different uh, and have there's different ways to skin a cat. That's one of the first key things that we're going to look at. You know, it's it's not just about process. It's about relationships. And um, it was a beautiful moment of awareness for him. He's like. Okay, <laughs> I think I can, I think I can get on board with some of that. Um, but being able to bring everybody on board and inspire them and give them space to engage with the activity, he has no, no idea what's in store for him in terms of how much is going, how much creativity and innovation is going to release in the workplace when he gets out of the way. Yes, his process drives results, but it won't drive results for every single person. So it's, yeah, it's going to be awesome when we start to um, unleash some of that stuff. Mm -hmm. the, I think I was reading about a company in Australia that they allow, they let people like for half the day on Friday, just build whatever they want. If they thought it would help out the company and they were just getting like these wild ideas, but like a lot of them actually would come in to affect the company in a meaningful way. But the, a lot of them, they wouldn't even see coming because if you, if you try and like trickle down, like I have an idea and I tell everyone below me to do it, even if I'm engaging them with developing the idea, it's different than if those people are activating to create the ideas and then bringing mm. it up to you. So it's mm. like, if it's only one sided, then like, it's kind of like playing like, like, I don't know, like, uh, what's the game with paddles? The, it's not pong. Uh, ping pong. Ping pong. There you go. P pong was in the name. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's like playing ping pong by yourself. Like it, you can do it, but like yeah. it's, you know, you have people there, so why not do both? Uh, I'm curious though, um, for this con like this idea of like continual like experimentation and trying to like find the like constantly assess and see how your culture is and like developing as time goes on. Um, mm -hmm. I grew up on a farm, so I think of this conceptually as like a farm thing. But like something that farmers do is when they're trying out a new uh, way of farming for whatever it is, like a new tractor, new like experiment, uh, new uh, technique, is they'll do like a fourth of the field. Like they'll do like a take an acre and do like a fourth of it and be like, all right, let's see how, you know, same crop everywhere else. Let's do, let's see how that goes. And then we'll, then we'll do like half the, half the field, et cetera, et cetera. Is that uh, a similar schema to how you suggest people to experiment with culture and uh, the workplace? Do they have like, like different teams try different ways of doing things? Then as it is effective, move it back up into the rest of the, the, the team, like the rest of the team, or is there like a, a better way to, uh, think about how to continually evolve and experiment with how the work culture is going to work. So I'd probably say a different metaphor. Um, mm. I'd probably say human body metaphor and you need to start with the head and allow it to spread through the body. So uh, organizational culture is like a whole human body system. 
and each part is important in its own right and has its own set of tissues and, and cells, et cetera, that are quite different. So the finger is quite different to the nose, say, for example, in both structure and function, uh, which is exactly the same thing in an organization. What the marketing department is quite different to what the finance department does. And yet they're all important part of the whole body, if you like, of the business. So the way to experiment with culture is always from the top. Uh, because everything you do at the top has ripple effects across the organization. So I think if you experiment just with the finger, you're not going to get the right outcome because um, there's this, these elements in the fabric of the body, like power, like reporting, like uh, repercussions. And unless you have ownership from the top, from the head, then whatever happens in, in an experiment won't necessarily be powerful. Now, um, Having said that, who, for anyone who's listening, who isn't part of the executive, who isn't a CEO or managing director, what can you do if you're in a culture that needs some work is you can start where you are. So you can show up as a leader who has an influence over your own team unit. And you don't have to wait for culture to change at the start to, in order to have a positive effect on the people that you immediately work with. So I think there's a little bit of that to take in mind. If we're going to do systemic change, though, we need to take a systems approach, which means we need to look at the interactions between teams, um, the micro cultures that exist between teams, how the whole fabric of the business and tissue of the business works together and work to pinpoint where the friction points are and uh, where we can improve the health of the whole organization. So there's a systems thinking approach. There's an isolated approach, which is your, your quarter of a field kind of idea. And there's always moving from the head out through everything else. That makes sense. The, especially because like a lot of people, like the incentive is to kind of understand what your boss is looking for and then mirror that or like to try and replicate that because they're setting kind of like the, the goal standards. So if you start with the head and work your way down, like people are going to be inherently interested in replicating that versus like if I like my right hand doesn't have any interest in copying my left hand unless the brain makes it want to. Like, so your, 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 your analogy <laughs> yeah. works better than my sharecropper idea. So, but I'm curious for, for, for people who are interviewing at a at a business, either establishment or startup, whatever it could be, um, could be like a small consultancy. So I've noticed that there seems to be like gradations in terms of what people communicate externally and how things are internally. So when people are doing the interview process, is there a way for people who want, who maybe don't know, I don't know, they could know like what type of culture they like, but how to assess and look for certain signs to see if the culture is right for them. I know you can ask, but sometimes I, I know people who, who work for places that say, oh, we all get along. And it's like the, you know, everyone sings rainbows out of their mouths all the time. And they're really nice. It's like maybe like 80% of the time, but like 20% of the time they're not. And they're grumpy about something. But like, how do you, is there a good way to uh, assess as you're trying to decide to go internal if a, a company has the right culture that will fit with you? Well, it's, um, it's using a bit of detective work, or as another colleague would say, it's doing, being a bit of an anthropologist as you go into a business. A corporate anthropologist, um, I will remember his name when it comes up for me and tell it to you as it, when it does pop back into my memory. Um, he talks about this and he talks about every organization has its own unique culture. I don't think trying to replicate cultures isn't a thing um, because it depends on a whole bunch of different factors. But when you go into a business, a place of work, start paying attention to the symbols of that business. So how are things laid out? What's the reception area like? 
because it'll give you a taste and a flavor. So, and once you start paying attention to the stuff, you'll notice the differences. So for example, I'm thinking about this uh, big legal firm. So when you go into their office, you have to go up big elevator and you get out and it's like white walls. It's very pristine. They've got the name of their business and they have a very large front desk counter with a little person buried behind it. And they have these beautiful big corporate flowers. So the impression you get is it's serious, it's um, expensive, and it's professional. So none of those things are either good or bad. It just gives you a flavor. Um, so I'd be paying attention to how they welcome people, what the entrance is looking like. Um, I would, there's a couple of hot spots I'd pay attention to too. It's like the tea and coffee or kitchen area, if they have one, A. <laughs> B, what that looks like. Is there a ton of signs that say, I'm not your mother, put your dishes away. You know, don't steal people's um, food from the fridge because those are kind of like passive aggressive notifications and they give you a sense of the tone of the place. So that's a little hotspot area. Another hotspot area would be the toilets. Um, so the bathroom. So if you go into the bathroom, same thing applies. Is it well kept? Is it is it nice place to be? Or does it have, is it a bit skanky? And does it have those same passive aggressive notes on the back of the door, you know, clean up after yourself and like just giving you a long list of things you should and shouldn't do in the bathroom. Mm. Um, those are kind of indicators of the kind of culture that's there. It's not, it's, I wouldn't say, you know, make a, make a job decision based on those two things, but those are kind of the physical signs. Another thing I'd look at is what is the layout of the office? Is everybody sitting there with headphones on, buried in their work? Because that's a, a quiet, focused kind of culture. Is it open space, open plan with different little cubby holes that people can go and work? Um, so these are kind of indicators of the kind of energy the place will uh, emit. I walked past this uh, organization yesterday, last night. Uh, it's called Boncella. It does super managed, um, super self-managed super funds is its business. And I thought this is interesting. So I looked at their reception room and it had all these beautiful plants and it was in really some attention been paid to the atmosphere, like making it comfortable and welcoming and fun. Mm -hmm. And then, so that was sort of in the reception area. And then as you walked around the corner, I could see the work hubs and they were a bit of a combination of open plan and focused area, which you'd want for people who are doing finances. They need to concentrate. And yet there was, then there was this wall, this one little section which had pictures of the staff, I'm guessing it was staff, doing all these sorts of fun activities. And uh, that gave me a clue. I'm like, well, this is the messages I'm getting from their physical space. They want to be warm and welcoming and comfortable. They want to do some focus work so they know the value of the two of the things, so task versus team. And then they've got this wall, which is like, we are all about people, we care about each other, and we do fun things together. So even not having met anybody, that would be the indication and the clues about what kind of culture you could be walking into there. And I guess the other thing to ask is, um, a couple of things I'd ask as a person going into an interview is, how, do you, how does the company define success? Because that gives you a hint of what the values are really about. Um, B, how, how are people recognized and appreciated in the workplace? And if they're not recognized and appreciated, they won't have an answer, but they might have a whole system about that. And three is how would the staff describe the culture and <laughs> see what they come up with. <laughs> um, so those are is doing a bit of anthropologist work. Uh, we'll get you there.
Michael Henderson. Oh, yes, remembered his name. Uh, he is the corporate anthropologist. He's, uh, he's, I think he's, Austra he is Australian, and he's written a number of awesome culture books. And one of my favorite is called Above the Line. Uh, so that's, I'd highly recommend that book. Sweet. I'm going to check it out. The, um, basically, any book you recommend, I'll, I'll check out. I, I read a lot. The, um, I, I like the idea. Not when you describe the like a wall of kind of like representations of them going and having good times. I like that because mm -hmm. that's kind of what my my girlfriend and I do with our wall. And then oh, um, cool. I think like the idea that well, I like it because like like if you're in a company and like something like is really intense going on and you're trying to you know, focus on it and like you're kind of like in like that death valley of like having to work on something really hard and you don't know if you're going to get to the other side you can mm -hmm. look up and see all the fun times and you know like hey when we get through this we're gonna have a good time we're gonna like come back together even if there's like a conflict i think it i think images and stuff like that helps tie people together and in a way that i i've been to a number of business places and a lot of them don't have stuff like that but i feel like it'd be a really positive thing to have a wall where you guys are seeing doing stuff together especially as like you bring you are bringing in people to it uh, to potentially be employed there they can see like oh am i the type of person who would like these type of things or oh what ideas could i talk about in the interview to give them suggestions on things they could do in the, in the environment um i think it's just i really like that as a, a, a like a cultural touch point for someone to, to grab onto and i hope like more people listening will grab onto that as well because then it just makes it easier for like, it's a nice little talking point i think but another um I don't know, like suggestion or like something that I've noticed is that like you can kind of see like how people are if you see like, if you, like so I was at this conference and this guy was like really really friendly and I was like oh okay you know he's just a friendly guy you know I'll watch his behavior see if he is a friendly person and um and uh, he, one, I was talking like later I was talking to one of his employees and she, this person was like really nice friendly as well the boss came by and it was like like inverted and like tried like hiding and i was like well that's really odd and so i like like tried like edging out of the conversation like i take a step back because I, I don't know people do this sometimes when they're like awkward but i always try to keep people like physically like that i'm like they know i'm, I'm like engaging them as well and she just kept like trying to get and hide behind <laughs> away from her boss or something like that i was like well that's really odd and it's like and then as i got to know that person it's like oh, okay like that that he not as friendly as they appear so like that like lockdown and like the like like shrinking as soon as the person came over something that i noted yeah. and, and that and then i've been trying to pay attention to more so like when someone if a boss comes by and people brighten up like you can kind of see it in their face and their smile versus where mm -hmm. like like they'll like kind of show like oh when this guy comes around he's you know not as friendly you know um yeah. i think it like just you know because i think one of the nice things that i like when people do interviews is they'll like kind of like introduce the team see like have like a team interaction like with, especially with someone you're going to be working with and there's always like that like a couple seconds before that person completely understands like what you're why you're there where you're just like the boss is talking or like the supervisor's talking and you can kind of see how they normally engage and then you can mm -hmm. see how like it changes slightly when they talk to you like oh sweet new person you know because like how you talk to somebody you know is slightly different than how you talk to somebody you don't know so that's uh, that's something that i've noted that i think has been helpful for me to see um in a, as quicker like a little quicker way if like people are portraying themselves authentically as to what they are on the inside is like how people react mm -hmm. when they move around in their space. And I think what you'll notice too, is that if it's the boss, how the boss shows up is like through a megaphone. So if you're having a bad day as the boss, the ripple effects are far more um, magnified than if you're not the boss. 
So I always ask in my master classes, what do you think is more um, uh, addict, not addictive, contagious, uh, a good mood or a bad mood? And quite often people say bad mood. And the truth is actually, the science says that a good mood is actually more uh, communicable, it's more contagious. And, you, and we know this to be true because when we smile at somebody, we give them a flag of, hey, I'm friendly, I'm safe. And so we respond in kind. That's what their mirror neurons do in our brain. They help us to understand if, if it's socially safe or not. Um, a bad mood is not as contagious, even though it's awkward to be around. And often people in bad mood want to recruit other people to whinge to. If the boss comes in with a bad mood, it spreads like wildfire because they're the alpha. And as we've gone through our cultural human evolution, we've always kept our eyes and awareness on the alpha, the leader, because they're responsible for group safety. So the leader is chilled and relaxed. Everybody else will be chilled and relaxed because they know that the safety of the tribe is fine. If the leader is on alert and frustrated, then we know there's a threat to the safety of the tribe. So that's why people will cower uh, if the boss comes by, especially if, they, if the boss is habitually in a bad mood or habitually aggressive or habitually stern, then people t tend to respond to that through that pattern of engagement. So I think um, it's an interesting observation that you saw. And it's really interesting as you go as a new person to a workplace to see those, they're almost like subconscious flinchings uh, or subconscious smilings, if you like. And you can really sort of feel into the energy of the group around that. Uh, there's a lot that you can pick up just by paying attention and being a little bit observant to those behavioral cues. Mm -hmm. Kind of combining this topic and the, a previous one about um, like people who can't see the value of something. Have you have you seen someone come your way that was like their employees were like, hey, you know, Zoe's great. <laughs> Maybe you should talk to her. And then at first they were kind of like they were like definitely in need of it, but. Uh, by the end of it, they were, I guess, like, really, I'm trying to, I'm curious, like, is there ever a point where, like, the person is, like, so far into, like, like, I don't know, like, the shadow realm of not wanting to, like, open their eyes to, like, different mm -hmm. possibilities so they can't be reached? Have you, like, ever met someone like that? And I, I, I structure it as, like, maybe the employees bring it that way, because if they don't come themselves, then maybe they won't be as open to receiving you and, like, the, what you have to say. But I'm curious, have you, have you found a person who has come to you that way maybe and that has hasn't been able to be like brought back and seen like a different way of perceiving things or has it been just like a matter of like bringing them out to the wilderness like like kind of stripping them away from um like the anchor points that allow them to behave that way and then slowly start evaluating what's going on i'm curious like how you like a have you experienced that as someone who can't come back or b like how would you how have you effectively brought someone from like that type of like negative, like locked in state, like white knuckle in it so, so they don't move to more of an acceptance area. Yeah, it's an interesting one. So when I get calls like that, can you help Jonathan? Um, yeah. <laughs> we've got a problem with Jonathan. I'm like, tell me about Jonathan. And they describe the set of behaviors that's not helpful. Um, so I always ask them, is this a remedial engagement that you're after? Do you, are you wanting to shift and change Jonathan? They're like, yes. And I'm like, I don't do remedial work um, because as you described, they're, they're resistant to it. And why are they resistant to it is the question. It's not a personality problem per se, um, though sometimes that is the case. More often than not, the reason I don't do remedial work on someone is because they're part of an entire system. And unless we look at it, 
holistically and what's going around holistically in their team, holistically in the organization, and what's contributing to their negative behavior and negative attitude, then we're not going to get any traction. And there, this is before I, before I worked out that, that was the case. I'd take on these remedial cases and uniformly they, they'd end up leaving the organization, which for the person who contacted me is neither here nor there. It could be good, could be bad. Um, and it doesn't solve the organizational problem. So, and they're doomed to repeat the pattern. So a new Jonathan will arrive at some point around that. So um, are some people completely resistant to change? Yeah, uh, because if it serves them not to change, why would they change? So I'm just thinking about this one um, auditor that I worked with. And he was a remedial case before I made that rule of not doing remedial cases. And they really wanted him to up level. And to be fair to him, like he embraced the opportunity as much as he was able, but he did it with suspicion because even though they didn't say it, he picked up on the fact that they thought there was something wrong with him that needed fixing. And uh, that is no way to engage somebody in a development opportunity because they're already feeling judged and threatened. So all their fear mechanisms will, and hackles will be up. And so anything I do around that is going to be challenging them. They're going to be wondering about the feedback that hasn't been given to them, which was the case. Like he hadn't been given this explicit feedback around it. And so there was always that level of fear to his credit. He did experiment with a few things because I did a hell of a lot of work to help him feel safe in the relationship that we were having in a coaching context. And he experimented with a few different things and went for it for him though. It was, um, he didn't really want to change because he was looking at, I have five years left and I'm retiring. So they can't get rid of me. I'm not underperforming. So I'm going to ride it out. Screw them. And so it was, it was a combination of personality, context, and systems that were creating this shitstorm, basically, <laughs> of poor behavior that nobody was happy with, least of all. Well, Jonathan was happy in a certain way because he just kept, he put his armor up. And that's mm -hmm. how he's like, I'm who I am. And this is the way it is. I get my job done. And so he isolated himself, but the ripple effect was, was pretty nasty. Um, so yeah, I always, I always talk through that lens. If we're going to do a change, it's not changing someone. We're changing the system first. And we, we do a systemic change as opposed to a, uh, a symptom change. That makes sense. The, I imagine like, yeah, I'm just kind of like evaluating like what you said. And I, I could see that the systemic would be, like it would prevent you from like isolating down on one person and then having the same remedial problem. So if you look at it like, like uh, on a, on a system level, then it kind of like addresses everyone equally. So no one feels drawn out. I'm just like marveling at like, that's a pretty effective way of going about it. Um, but the, I'm curious cause we kind of touched on the, the, like the science side of things a little bit. I'm sorry, mm -hmm. I want to keep an eye on the time that so I don't want to like go over, but the, you, you, you said in our, preamble before we spoke that and i think it's this is on your website as well but that like culture isn't just is is like a science versus this nebulous mm -hmm. philosophical thing that a lot of people conceptualize it around and mm -hmm. so i'm curious what what allows you to think more scientifically about work culture that like the average person who just perceived it as like this like i think we've kind of been like symptomatically talking about how it's like a science and how you can experiment and like try, um, which is like a, a key aspect of science, but I'm curious, like what, uh, what are some 
aspects of culture that would help people understand that it's more of a science than this um like more philosophical touchy-feely type thing well i mean i mentioned dark art yeah yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah um there's two things probably one is that in all the work that i've done around researching people stuff and all the people that i've worked with hundreds and thousands of people over the last 30 odd years uh, there's patterns there's patterns of interactions, there's patterns of behavior. And as soon as you see patterns, that's something that you can measure. And that's something that you can put frameworks around and you can run experiments with, which is the scientific approach. So there's an element to that. And um, so I believe very much that there are patterns of behavior that we can, um, that we can map. And if we can map it, we can manage it. And we can do that, we can measure it. So if we map, measure and manage culture then we've got the makings of taking a scientific forensic approach to it. The other component, I think, which is um, bringing a scientific approach into the culture thing is so much work being done in the neuroscience side of things. So understanding how brains and emotions of human beings operate has a huge effect on being able to change our interactions. So that's the scientific discovery as well. So everything that we're learning around anything from biochemicals in the workplace. So how uh, dopamine, oxytocin, serotonin, and uh, endorphins work and interplay and the kinds of activities we do in the workplace that create those hormones and their effect on us biochemically uh, has, a, has an interesting imperative of how we build systems in place at work as well. So there's, there's research on the human body, on the human brain, and how we interact that is lending itself to exploring the people stuff as a scientific exploration. Um, Vanessa Edwards has a great book and she's done a lot of work around this as well. And the book is called Captivate. So she, she takes a scientific approach to the people stuff as well, sort of researching those patterns. And uh, there's been a lot of experiments around like how we build rapport, like uh, what are the, facial signals that we give that help build rapport. So you can take all the analysis that's gone around that to then apply to, right, I'm going to show up at a networking event and I know that if I'm going to build, bring in oxytocin and build safety and trust in a, in a relationship with somebody I don't know yet, I'm going to do three things. I'm going to do eye contact, especially in the Western cultures, other cultures, not necessarily the case, eye contact. I'm going to shake somebody's hand because that physical contact introduces a sense of oxytocin. And I'm going to plant my feet in a way that is non-threatening and helps me uh, generate strength and stability, which increases my testosterone, my assertiveness, confidence hormone. So I show up friendly, engaging, building a sense of trust and confidence in the re relationship. So that's a small snapshot of how we can take a scientific approach to doing what beforehand has been like, you know, it's the vibe is how we describe culture. Is it so in a lot of the examples, um, it's so far been like more male. Is it? Oh, is has it, it, I guess it has. Yeah. Yeah. Is it different for women? Is it? Um, I'm, a, I'm not a girl, so I don't know. But like, is it like when a woman's navigating the world culture space, are they experiencing it different than? how a, a guy would or like if they're at a conference do they square differently because uh i know that i don't know i i suspect there's a difference but i'm curious if there is one that you've noted in a way that like mm -hmm. a, wom a woman may portray herself that would be to her benefit at a conference for instance or any of these other situations that uh would allow them to navigate things easier i think there's there's human principles that apply across any yeah. gender um yeah. And so the ones I described apply across any gender. Um, 
and I'm not one to polarize by saying talking men's leadership and yeah. women's leadership. And having said that, there's some, there are some small differences that both men and women need to keep in mind, simply based on physiology, if nothing else. Um, the fact that a lot of men are taller and bigger has an impact on how they engage with others. So tall, big is anchored in our social conscience as power and alpha. Mm. And um, if you're shorter and smaller, whether male or female, that creates a power dynamic that's all subconscious. And so big guys need to have to work really hard to help people feel safe. Otherwise, mm. they can use automatically use their alpha influence to, to manage the situation. Um, for women, if they're short like me, I'm only five foot four, you know, a big presence. Mm. <laughs> um, you have to stand your ground and project presence uh, in a way that you can engage with somebody who's taller and bigger than you and on equal terms. And it was interesting at this networking event just recently, I was sitting with a friend who was about my height and she goes, I'm just doing this experiment. I'm looking around. Do all the tall people hang out together? Is it people who are of the same height all hang out together? And we looked around and I'm like, yeah. So all the six foot plusers were all hanging out together and all the shorter people were all hanging out together. This is easier. It's easier. You don't have to scooch down. You don't have to train back. Um, and so it's easier to converse that way. And then it creates these interesting patterns because a lot of the taller people tend to be male. So then you have this gender thing where all the tall men sit together and all the shorter women sit together. And then you're like, oh, it's like it's, it's a patriarchy. It's like, no, it's a biological thing that's being incorporated into our system subconsciously that we need to manage. Um, so the other dynamic, which I think is important to discuss, which is sometimes at play, sometimes at not, and I'm still pondering this myself, is how much does sexuality come into the workplace? You know, male, female, whether it's male, whatever interest you have and whatever physicality, there's an element of that and how does that show up? And I think when we learn to master our presence, we diffuse any of that stuff. Um, so I know there's a lot of, I have friends who are very feminine and they talk a lot about feeling threatened in different contexts. And, um, and I wonder about that is how can we manage that? Do we need to change the whole system of patriarchy? Do we need to elevate this whole concept of what's acceptable in the workplace? And certainly we've been doing a lot of work around that. Um, is it a truth that women are unsafe at work? I don't think so. Um, and it certainly hasn't been my experience. And I'm wondering, is that just because I'm lucky, I've managed to escape all the Me Too stuff and others haven't, or is it is the way that I handle myself? Hmm. Or is it a combination of both? So these are unanswered questions for me and I'm, I'm aware that this is a huge explosive conversation potentially hmm. around how men and women show up in the workplace. My, as a, as a leadership expert and as somebody who cares deeply about humanity, I always aspire to the fact that we'll be able to connect with one another, human to human, regardless of gender preference and gender presentation. Mm -hmm. And I always try and help my leaders get to that space and so that we can both honor and accept our differences as well as embrace our common humanity. And that's what I aspire to bring to the world in the work that I do, is that we get to that place sooner and faster rather than just articulating our differences all the time. Yeah, I think there, we're always going to have more in common than not. And I, I, I think also that, uh, I mean, everyone has like a really great, like amazing story. Like you have an entire life that I have not led. And so like, I think so, like when I, when I'm talking with someone and I don't understand something, like there's that, I think like the first reaction I might have is like, oh no, like, you know, 
what aren't they getting or something like that. Instead, I like to frame it as like, what am I not getting to not understand why we're different? Like, why are we like thinking, like, why are they thinking A and I'm thinking B? Like, B isn't inherently better than A, so I should try and understand where it's coming from. Mm -hmm. So I always like to see things from the other person's perspective. But um, I was reading that there's this thing called equine therapy where people will work with these horses that have, I think, been abandoned or something like that. But the there, it works with confidence because, and there was this good story where like this, this woman was, um, she kind of felt like she didn't have good, you know, presence. She was very like, you know, introverted and, and didn't feel like people were hearing her. And so the day one, they had her come out and they said, take, take this horse. You can't say anything, make it go to the other side. You can't touch it. Make it go to the other side of the, the, the field. And, and so she just started walking in a way that she thought would make the horse follow. And like halfway through, she's like, oh my God, the horse is following me. And then the horse stopped because like she questioned it. Like when, when, cause like horses are kind of like mirrors to people. And, um, and so like this, this like kind of like walking in a way that you expect to be heard and listened to, it seemed to like be really effective in like helping this person and through equine therapy to see that like, that's a good way to get people to listen. But I, I'm curious, like if there's any other ways to, to do that as well. And then kind of like a, a small anecdote about like, like, I, like what you said about like big people having to be aware of it. It reminds me, um, recently I realized I'm a big person uh, because I go for walks a lot and I I, was, I think of myself as a friendly person. And uh, so I'm going out for these walks and I noticed that like some people will like walk around me as if like I'm like a dog and that, you know, like if there's a dog and I don't know it, I'm like, oh, okay, like let's not make sure that, you know, it can't bite me. And so they walk around me as if like, I'm a dog because they don't know that I'm a friendly guy. And so it's because mm -hmm. I'm a big person and like, just like understanding, like I can, for, I like for someone who doesn't know me, I, I am kind of like, you know, could be, be potentially be like a scary person um, just because of how big I am. It's like really helped me interact with like a lot of my like shorter friends or like people that I know when um, we're going out and working around. But I, I am curious if there are other ways to build that like kind of uh, internal uh, ability to realize that if you walk, in a way that people that you think people would, would follow that people tend to follow and like respect that 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 bounds i don't know if they're if that is if that is answerable but i am curious if, if you found any ways for people to kind of like build that muscle internally that you've maybe built for yourself over time um, so yes there is a muscle that you can build i guess or a series of practices and mm -hmm. um Sydney Wigglesworth in her book, the SQ21, the 21 skills of spiritual intelligence, uh, talks a lot about these advanced emotional intelligence skills. And one of the um, ways to know that you've mastered some of this stuff is that if you become a calm and healing presence. And if you've ever been around somebody who's done a lot of deep internal work and everywhere they show up, they're just, they're just love personified and they have a beautiful feeling about them. And we just don't know what it is. We just feel calm in their presence. And you don't magically wake up and bang, you have that. Mm. <laughs> it's something you cultivate. And there's a number of different disciplines or practices um, that you can do to move towards that. Journaling is one. So in the work that I do with leaders to work on their people stuff, being a reflective practitioner where you explore your feelings, you look at your feelings, where they came from, what charged them, how you dealt with them, and you start to examine yourself and your emotions and how you show up in the world as a, as a study object through journaling is one way to start to detach a little bit from that and 
So that's one practice. Another practice is meditation, where we learn to calm our nervous system and um, activate our parasympathetic nervous system, which is our rest and digest system. And so that no matter, regardless of what's happening, we can stay calm and centered and smile through, not in a Pollyanna kind of way, but in the deeply centered way, the chaos around us. So those are like two touch points around that. I think huge personal self-mastery is a contributing factor to that. So that means looking after your wellness. It looks sleep, exercise, nutrition, um, water consumption. And the mindset piece is around the journaling. And then the, the meditation piece is around concentration and focus. So when we do those elements over a cumulative period of time, we can walk down the street, big or small, and radiate a presence of peacefulness. And I think that's the way to biohack it, if you like, to get to that point where you can be that person that people don't scutter away from, but they acknowledge you and they move on. Or you acknowledge them and you give the gift of your smile to them because any person is way, it's about a hundred times more beautiful. That's not scientifically proven. It's just my sense of it when they smile. And I think that's the biggest gift we can give each other day to day is to smile at each other and to say, thank you. Little things I think make a big difference. There's a, there's like a good talk where this person was like illustrating that point where it's like, like at what point did you fall in love with your significant others? Like there where I wasn't a point. It was like all these little things that built up to that love. Um, maybe there was a point, I don't know. Uh, uh, but for a lot of things, it's like, you know, like, how do you have good teeth? Like you brush them every day and make sure they're, you know, they're mm-hmm. taken care of. Like you gotta like do the little things right every day. And I think, I think sometimes people think that it's like this, like big lever where like you pull the switch successful, pull the switch. I have this thing, but in mm-hmm. reality, it's like you, it's so small that you only realize it once you build the momentum to look behind mm-hmm. you and see that you're moving faster than you were before. Which is, I think a lot of, I think something that a lot of people would um, understand is like maybe weight loss. Like you don't actually notice you lo- you lost weight until like you've actually like been lo- lost like five or so, you know, five or plus pounds. But like mm. you're still losing that weight all in between that. And you're thinking, oh, I'm not losing weight. No, should I be working out today? Like I'm not getting any, you know, gains or whatever people say nowadays. And it's like, it, just stay the course, do the little thing at the, the worst case scenario. You, you did it for yourself, for your mental health. And so like, mm. I think it's like, you got to build those blocks to, to kind of like, before you can, like, I, I guess that the point of that is just like, don't be like overly critical if the results are taking time to get there, because like the most important things in life take time to get. And like, mm-hmm. you really only see them if it's like, there's been a, a large interval of, of effort and time before you've assessed it. Like it's like journaling, I think it's like a good thing to like do. I actually don't know how often you should journal. I imagine it's every day, but like, I, I never know like how much you're actually supposed to journal. Is it, well, is it every, is I, every- I take the should out of it, basically, um, because anytime you kind of make it a should, it becomes an obligation. I mm. don't think obligation is graceful at all. Um, so a regular practice, whatever it is for you, there's and I think you don't make a rule out of it to make it a habit. And mm. whatever that habit is, it could be a daily habit. And it could be a weekly habit. So a couple of journaling practices I have. So as per James Clear in Atomic Habits, I track some of my habits, which has been a useful exercise for me to bring awareness to what are are my intentions matching or my actions matching my intentions. So if I want to have a habit of meditation, am I actually doing it? (laughs) Because we can fool ourselves. So that's one way to journal is just to track your habits. The reflective practice I do in a couple of different ways. I have a success journal where I record 
um, process outcomes, sorry, outcome successes, so results. So I record results and I also record process successes, which is, for example, I wrote a blog article today or I published a podcast today. In of itself doesn't necessarily signify the results of my business, it's a process activity. Mm. And yet I get a sense of accomplishment and progress with that. And the other way I journal is with, with questions. So I interrogate my world experience. I, and I change the activities all the time. So for example, I might say, what am I worrying about today? So these are all the things I'm worrying about. <laughs> Just dump that there. And then it might be, what do I need to make a decision about? And then I do an exploration of the decision-making process. So this is a decision I need to make. These are my options. This is how I'm considering them. This is the decision I'm going to make. And then I make a date for myself to reflect on that a month, two or three months later and see how it played out. Did it play out? And that's the way that I can enrich and enhance my decision-making process. So I think with journaling, the idea, the concept is treat yourself as an object of study and be curious and humane to yourself with that. And as long as you do it more than once a year, <laughs> well, once a year is better than none time, no times a year. Mm -hmm. um, and as long as it's serving you, I think that's, that's the thing to keep in mind. Makes sense. The, I know like if you focus on like, focus on making it a fun thing, you'll do it more often than if you make it like a do like a responsible thing. So I think mm -hmm. like, I know like journaling is one of those things but, that I've been trying to get in on and uh, meditating. And I, I have mm -hmm. seen it more like, like the less, like what you just said not to do. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to reframe it. And then I'm going to try it the way you said to do it. And I think it'll probably be better because then it, it'll be more like something to look forward to than something to be, I don't know. I look, look forward to things, but so I have a couple of uh, last questions I'd like to ask everyone. Um, yeah. and, um, uh, they usually, there are some, some are kind of goofy, but, uh, one, cause we just basically talked about how smart you are and, uh, like we're very solution minded in terms of like answering questions. I'm curious, what is a question that you don't have the answer to that you would love to have the answer to? So like one that I have, mm -hmm. and this is like, like really like pie in the sky stuff for me, but, uh, it can be anything for you. Uh, one I always wonder is like if the Big Bang is responsible for making the universe, like what would happen if I stopped the Big Bang from happening in the past? Like what would be here? I wonder about mm -hmm. that. I've talked to physicists. Uh, apparently, uh, the Big Bang started time. So like they usually make fun of me for asking a question that's related to before something that started the thing that created the thing for me to say before. Um, they make fun of me a lot. But what is, what is a, a question that you don't have the answer to, but that you love the answer to? So thinking about development of human civilization and looking for the patterns in it. And there's been a lot of people looking at different kinds of circular patterns in human development. And I want to know is where are we in the pattern of human civilization right now? Are we going through a regression that's going to lead to a catapult to a further evolution? Or is this going to be the new default state of being? Um, so I'm I kind of like, I don't know. <laughs> it's like, where are we? I like to think that we are in kind of like pulling an elastic band backwards so that we can go forward. That's my, that's my feeling around it, but it's not necessarily a scientific analysis of it. So I'm curious about where are we sitting in human development? The other thing I'm wondering is, well, and maybe this is another question is <clears throat> how fast is it going to be before we can have the neural link implanted in our brain and able to communicate uh, with enhanced technology in our brains and bring on the self-driving cars. When is that going to happen? <laughs> Those are my three questions, I guess. So a bit more oversighty and then a bit more technical 
uh, oriented. The, I, I have answers to these, but I will save them <laughs> so other people can answer you as well. Um, you have answers to all three of those? I have answers to the last two because I, cool. I, I worked at a brain computer interface startup that is similar to Neuralink. So I can kind of tell you, cool. Not, well, I can't tell you what they're up to, but I can tell you like in general what they're, uh, what those things are. But what is, uh, um, and the self-driving car, I have a friend who works at Waymo, which is like, uh-huh. uh, they're the Google version of yep. self-driving cars. So I have, I have a pretty good idea, like how quickly we're going to get those. But, um, but if anyone else has any ideas, send an email to me, I'll send it to, to Zoe. And, uh, or, you know, you can probably connect directly. I think we're going to talk about your social links in a couple of minutes, but so what is a problem you're having with this? is The second question, the, I have weird transitions, The I have a, what is a problem you're having right now that you'd love people to help you with other than the questions that you just asked, but is there a, a problem or a concern that you have right now that's active in your life that maybe someone listening could help you with? Yeah. So I've been working with a natural therapist, forensic, um, Oh God, I don't know what she calls her title basically, but I'd love to know if there is a service or if there is a device of some sort, which can, this is, this is maybe a futuristic thing, right? So a device that can tell me what to eat, when to eat so that it optimizes my biochemistry because everybody's biochemistry is different. And I've noticed like I can eat the same breakfast for two months and it'll have an impact like losing weight one month and then not the next. I'm like, what the fuck is that about? You know, how do we, how can I respond and uh, cultivate my best nutritional plan for my biochemistry is something I'd love to get sorted. I'd love to have an optimal nutritional plan that's custom designed for my own biochemistry and lifestyle. And then the ultimate thing is to have someone just cook the food for me. <laughs> I don't know if that's going to happen. <laughs> Well, there's services, isn't there? Like, I don't know if you guys have this in Australia, but we have like blue, sh- blue shield or blue apron where you can like, blue they'll apron. send you the, they'll yeah. send you the meals. The, they always seem a little bit expensive for me, but they don't cook them. Oh no. I, I got, they only send you the recipe. Uh, yeah. never mind. I'd like the personal chef. Thanks. Yeah. That'd be awesome. <laughs> that'd be, I, I wish there was like a gig economy where like you could have someone come over. I mean, someone's safe. Cause like they're coming over with knives and stuff to like cook. And, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, is there, is there a quote that, I mean, you, you've been really good at citing your sources in terms of books, so I'm, I'm pretty excited, but is there a quote that you tends to inspire you that you'd love to share with us? Or is there a quote that you think about a lot when you formulate your concepts of culture? Probably an overarching philosophy, one that has stayed with me for 20 odd years, and it's Maya Angelou. And it, she said, life loves those who live it well. And I like that as an overarching philosophy in everything that we do in, in work and play. So that one stays with me. Life loves those who live it well. It's a reminder to do, to live life well, whatever that means for each of us. Mm -hmm. Then uh, you've recommended some pretty good books so far. Uh, Mm. Is there, are there other good books that you'd recommend? Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Now you're an avid reader, so look out. Um, Probably the funnest, uh, the one that I've highlighted the most this year, maybe because I was getting right into the science of people stuff, is uh, David Robson's new book, The Intelligence Trap. And he's a science writer, so you'll, you'll geek out on his stuff. And his book, The Intelligence Trap, came out a little bit earlier this year, and I interviewed him on podcast. And I think it's 
really quite extraordinary some of the research he's done in there so i'd highly recommend that if you're and his tagline is why smart people do dumb things and he's looked at a lot of the different biases that and traps that we get into as human beings which is really good from a culture point of view also interviewed josh levine on my podcast who wrote great mondays that's it's a really wonderful little handbook for for corporate culture um so those are the two that pop into my brain. I've interviewed a lot of people on my podcast who are authors that have been, been quite amazing. So the full list will be there on my site. But those, those two are like my faves. So, oh, probably, and here's a third one because we need to balance it out, is um, Ish by Lynn, Kaz Lynn Kazali. And she talks about the problem of perfectionism. And I think that's a beautiful book to help us, those of us who are cursed with perfectionism to get over ourselves and get on with it. And that's the, the third book I'd also recommend. Have you read, I think it's, I, I can picture his name is Daniel. And I feel like his last name starts with an A, but it's think slow, think, think fast, think slow. It's like, it's like a tone. Daniel Kahneman, think fast okay. and slow. Okay. Think fast and slow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was completely off from the first letter of the last name. So you know about it. I, I kind yeah. of fits the theme. Um, yeah. Then you have a book coming out that you're working on. Yeah. When, when can people expect it and where can we find it? So it uh, looks like it's going to hit the printers in May, May 2020. And it'll be available on all the major bookstores. So Amazon, Barnes & Noble and all that kind of stuff. It'll also be available on my website at zoerouth.com. And it's called People's Stuff, The Power of Perspective for Better Leadership. Is there, I imagine maybe they could go to your website and get signed up. So that the people who listen to this before May can make sure they don't miss out or forget about it. Is the, yeah. is going to your website and signing up to that the most effective way? Or is it maybe there's a Twitter or social media handle that is also equally as good or is, is yeah. What's the best way for people to make sure they don't miss out on that launch? Uh, so signing up directly on my website is useful. You'll get the people stuff toolkit there. So you go to Zoe Routh, Z-O-E-R-O-U-T-H.com. And the other place, if you can't remember that is to hook up with me on LinkedIn and so I've spent a lot of time in LinkedIn. That's probably my busiest platform um, and most interactive platform. So those are the two ones. Sweet. And for everyone, every link that we talked about is going to be in the show notes. Just but for people listening, in, I'm glad that she spelled it and I didn't because I, I do it wrong. Um, <laughs> then I think we have your social medias. Oh, I mean, like the website. Then is there any other uh, links or um our websites that you'd have people know about in association with you before we sign off? Oh, that, that's it. That's like the center of my planet at the moment. Zoeyrath.com okay. and LinkedIn. I am on Facebook and Twitter there. I'm less active there though. Hmm. Oh, wait, what's the name of your podcast? I want, you know, people can listen in and hear it. <laughs> it's really hard to remember. It's called the Zoe Routh Leadership yeah. Podcast. <laughs> wow. Okay. Yeah. All right. So app, uh, iTunes, Zoe Routh, and you find it. Yeah. Unless I hope I don't know how many Zoe Routh's there are, but um, all right then. This is at least learnable. two. <laughs> really? Sorry, I interrupted. Yeah, yeah. I get, I get um, I have a Googler for Zoe Routh to see if there's any media being published by me, and sometimes I get um, there was a Zoe Routh who their tombstone came up. I'm like, oh, that's weird. And then mm -hmm. there was a, there's another Zoe Routh somewhere in the states who's in high school doing something or other. So <laughs> there's, a, there's well, I guess that's two alive and one dead at least. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so. Yeah, I, I only I'm the only little Thompson I know that doesn't have gray hair. So like everyone else is like really old. Once my dad, I'm like the second. Um, I don't know. It's a goofy name, but I like your name as well. Especially when there's like not that many people with the name. It's kind of like I don't know. It's a special thing. But for 
Uh, everyone who's been listening so far, I want to thank you for, for listening and checking this out. And go sign up on her website and check out her podcast. And uh, if you want to check out the pep, uh, website for this podcast, it's learnwithall.com. And uh, thanks again for, for tuning in today.